0: Our text that will be preached on and taught on uh, today is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10. through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word and they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever.
1: Right? So far, so good. That's good. we got a back up mic just in case. Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that your word never changes, that it is trustworthy completely, that we can sit here and listen to it being read, and um, we could go home right now and trust that it is going to do its great work. And so God, I pray that in humility that you would give me the words to speak this morning. I pray that you would give us all ears to hear, uh, and minds to understand, and hearts to receive uh, what it is that you have to show us from your holy word. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So each of us uh, has many hats that we wear. Uh, We play many different roles throughout our lives. Um, Maybe you're a student, you're a brother or sister, an aunt or uncle, A mom or a dad, a son or a daughter, a husband or a wife. And then you have your vocation. You're a doctor, you're a nurse, you're a teacher, you're a photographer, uh, you're an engineer, you're a military officer. And then you have your hobbies. Working out, playing video games, pickleball. Or maybe, maybe you thought more about your online identity and than your actual real-life identity. So you have two different lives that, that are lived. And I would say, just as a side note application, if that's somewhere something that you think you might be struggling with, or, or you're just oblivious to it, you might want to ask your closest friends to say, is my life on the online the same as my life in, in the real world? And see what kind of answer they give to you. But maybe you've made that online identity your identity, who you are. Or maybe it's your cultural hat that you wear, or maybe an ideology that you've bought into. We saw this uh, during COVID, didn't we? Mask or no mask, or vaccine or no vaccine. I actually had someone email me during that time uh, a couple of years ago to ask if we required mask because, and I am quoting them, we identify as fresh air breathers. But what lies within every single one of these roles or these hats that we wear is the temptation to make them your identity, to make them who you are. The philosopher James K.A. Smith says in his book, You Are What You Love, he says, Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. So to wrap yourself up in being a mom, or being a dad, as Father's Day, or a musician, or a fresh air breather, is to place your identity in something that is fading, something that is withering, that eventually falls and will, will fail you. But what Peter is telling his readers is that your identity is not to be wrapped up in the culture. It's not to be wrapped up in your past life, or even what the world around you thinks about you. Rather, your identity is to be bound up in Jesus Christ. In every way, what Jesus' identity is, is yours as well. So as a Christian, that is now your reality. Christ's reality is your reality now. And in these seven verses, Peter does an amazing job kind of imaginatively painting this picture for us. And he does, it, he does this in the way that he structures these verses, so you'll notice, even as Joe was reading, that he go, he's going back and forth between who Jesus is and then who we are. He's never separating the two. And the other way that he does this, which is which is, uh, which is beautiful as well, is that Peter is drawing heavily from the Bible. He is continually, even if you don't see it outright, if it's not in, you know, in kind of a bold way in your Bible, this whole passage here is saturated with Old Testament passages. So Peter is constantly pointing his audience back to the Word. This is what the, the Word says. And this is important to note because it tells us that Peter saw the Old Testament Scriptures pointing to these realities about Jesus, but also seeing them fulfilled in Jesus. So when he's quoting these Old Testament passages here, he's not just saying, here is a quick kind of sight verse for you that I'm going to pull out of context because it's going to be encouraging to you. What Peter is doing with the Scriptures is he's saying, this passage is telling you about Jesus. And it just continues to make it more and more clear as they look at it. And then he takes this, and then he mixes us up in it as well. He, he, he mixes our story up with the story of Jesus, which really makes it a hard passage to break up because it is so intertwined. But for your sake, and mostly mine, I did break it up into three areas. So... So that we can have a better uh, a better go at it this morning. So the three areas that I, that I broke this passage up in is one, the dwelling place of God, in verses four through five, two is the cornerstone of God in verses six through eight, and then three is the chosen of God in verses nine through ten. The dwelling place of God, the cornerstone of God, and the chosen of God. So first the dwelling place of God. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So here, in this first part of verse 4, Peter is describing a present activity that his readers are currently engaged. They are coming to him, the living stone, who is the Christ. So this is important since we just read verse 3 last week that says that, that these readers have tasted that the Lord is good because Jesus Christ is how the Lord is good. So Peter's readers have tasted the Lord's goodness in Christ and this is why they continue to come to him, the living stone, over and over and over again. Now it's interesting to note here when we hear this uh, language about the stone or the rock and all of that in the scriptures, it's interesting to note that, in Ma- in, that Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 gives Peter the name Rock. So his, his name, Peter, means Rock. His name was Simon. And if you remember that, that incident in Matthew 16, he changes his name to Peter, which is Rock. And now Peter chooses to call Jesus the rock, or Jesus, the stone. Because Peter recognizes that the words spoken to him in Matthew chapter 16, and his changing of his name from Simon to Peter, when Jesus says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When Peter remembered those words, he knew they were referring not to him, as Roman Catholics believe, but to Jesus, that Jesus is the rock on which the church is built. Jesus is why the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Peter calling him the living stone indicates to us that he saw his life wrapped up in Jesus' life as well. That his very name was reminding him of who Jesus was as the rock. And I know you're thinking about Joanne Johnson right now. So, I can't help it. Jesus was called the rock first. Because you see it in Scripture. The image of rock and stone is commonly found in the Old Testament. We were in our our systematic theology class uh, earlier this morning. And uh, Tyler pointed us to Deuteronomy chapter 32, which talks about the rock. And the rock is always Christ. And so you, you, you are, this is often language that is applied to Jesus himself. So to make this connection here, we have to go to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.4, because Paul is very helpful here in making this connection very clear to us of what Peter is getting at here in the text. So Paul, thinking about the Exodus uh, moment where uh, the people are, 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 they have been freed from Egypt, Uh, and they are walking in the wilderness, and uh, they are thirsty. And so Paul is referring back to this particular moment when God provides water for them. And Paul says this, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So so again, Paul is referring to this incident that happens in the wilderness uh, to God's people after the Exodus. So they are free from slavery. If you remember the story of Exodus, God uh, uh, worked in miraculous ways. It was a very clear picture of God's deliverance. And yet God's people still complain. So, just back to Peter very briefly, because I love this about Peter, because he is constantly pointing his readers back to the Word of God. These are not Peter's words. Peter is saying, these are the, these, this is the word of God. He's not pulling this out of a vacuum and saying, let me try to explain this in my own words. But he's saying, no, all of these things are true in the scriptures about Jesus. So he's highlighting what has been true and set in place from the very beginning of time. So by referring to Jesus as the living stone, Peter, like Paul, is pointing his readers Back to Exodus chapter 17, which takes place just after God has delivered the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. I mean, an obvious, again, an obvious rescue by God. There was no question about that this was a miraculous work. They were not going to be freed by any human initiative. Egypt was too strong, they couldn't do it. But by the time we get to Exodus 17, the Israelites have been walking in the wilderness and they've already grumbled about not having enough to eat. And God provides for them miraculously with bread from heaven. And then they get to a point where they are very thirsty and they begin to grumble and complain against Moses again and ultimately grumbling and complaining against God at their lack of the luxuries that they had in Egypt. And in Exodus 17, they specifically complain for water. They begin to grumble against Moses to the point that they are ready to murder this man. And because of this, God, uh, Moses goes to God and he says these words. Praise this prayer. What shall I do with these people? What shall I do with them? And this is God's response. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Which is exactly what Moses does, and exactly what happens. So back to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. Because what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 10 was that this wasn't just another miracle for the people to be dazzled by God by. That wasn't the point of this miracle. Paul says the point of this miracle was to make a greater point about Jesus, the future Messiah, the future snake crusher to come to God's people. Because this act was a, a symbolic one or, or using typology to pointing to something that you wouldn't necessarily think was was something that was pointing to Jesus, but Paul makes it clear that it is this rock. But he's reminding the people not only of God's provision for them, but more importantly, his presence among them. But not only that, Paul is saying correctly that the rock that Moses struck and that God provided for God's people was a type of Christ. That in the same way as the rock was struck to provide life for the people in the wilderness, Jesus was struck to provide life for his people now. So now back to Peter, who tells his readers that Christ is the living stone or the living rock. That he's the same rock that gave nourishment to God's people in the wilderness then and continues to do it now. This is why it's a living stone that Peter describes. Not some dead inanimate object. It is a living stone. Because living indicates that Christ is the source and giver of life. And this is why his readers are coming to him. This is why they continue to come to the living stone. Because they recognize and believe that Jesus is the one who has given them life and the one who continues to give them life. So their lives, Peter is saying, are, are bound up with his, are bound up with Jesus' life. And he makes this really clear in verse 5. Look there with me in your Bible. Peter says, you yourself... So he just got through saying Jesus is the living stone. And then in verse 5 he says, you yourselves, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now Peter is saying, look, Jesus, because Jesus is a living stone or the living stone, you too are living stones. And because we are living stones, those who are in Christ, Peter says we are being built up as a spiritual house. And as as a spiritual house, we now become the place where God dwells. So right now, as we sit here, God dwells with us. He's here. He is in our midst. We have already invited Him to come and be with us, and the promises of scriptures remind us that He will be with us. And He is. He dwells with us. Paul brings this point, well, he brings the first point of God dwelling with us and the second point of God, being, uh, God bringing the cornerstone together nicely in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And none of that is possible without the cornerstone that God gives to us, who is Christ as well. Look at verses 6-8. through eight. Peter says again, For it stands in Scripture, So here in these verses, Peter is quoting directly from three different Old Testament passages. There's more there as well that he's hinting at, but three specific Old Testament passages to make clear who Jesus actually is. And I love the way he begins this section with, For it stands in Scripture, that the Scriptures say it, therefore this is true. And we can trust it. He's letting us know, kind of in a passing way, of the truth and reliability of the Word of God, especially as it pertains to Jesus. Peter is confident in the truth of God's Word, as we should all be if we call ourselves followers of Jesus. And here from the Old Testament Scriptures, he is saying that that Jesus isn't just any old stone in the house, but that he is the chosen and precious cornerstone of God. He is what the other stones are built off of, meaning that Jesus here is the key to salvation history. And to show us this, he begins by quoting Isaiah 28:16 to refer to the object that the Lord himself places in Zion, that the Lord himself places amongst his people. That's what he's saying there. Who we know to be God the Son, Jesus. So Peter has already kind of hinted at this truth in chapter 1, verse 20, when he reminds his readers that that Jesus was, was foreknown before the very foundations of the world. But here he adds that whoever believes in Jesus shall not be put to shame. Whoever believes in this one who has been foreknown before the foundation of the world, whoever believes in this cornerstone that God has put in place, that God calls precious, Shall not be put to shame. Which is a very direct, you can tell that Peter is a good pastor here, because this is a very direct application to his readers, considering that they were probably experiencing shame from their family, from their friends, from their neighbors, and even their own nation were shaming them. One commentator described their situation like this. He said Peter's readers were receiving a barrage of verbal abuse to demean, discredit, and shame the believers as social and moral deviants, endangering the common good. This procedure of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community to conform to conventional values and standards of conduct sounds eerily similar to our day, doesn't it? I mean, that is, that is just as applicable then as it is now for us. Because to walk away from everything, to follow Jesus, and if you've, you're a follower of Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, that is something that you have done. To walk away from everything to follow Jesus, to turn yourself in the opposite direction of the world, would and still will provoke shame from others directed toward you. They will try to shame you. <clears throat> I heard of a woman recently who came to Christ via one of our members, uh, one of her co-workers. And when, she, when this woman announced it on Facebook that she had become a Christian, she started to receive text messages from friends asking if she was okay which in a small kind of way is a jab of shame. You seem desperate. You seem like something's wrong here. Why would you begin to get all spiritual on us? How dare you do that? Peter says here to his readers that whoever believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. Never be put to shame. Because there is no shame to be had For those who follow Christ. But what is to be had for those who believe is the very opposite of shame. Peter says, it's honor that you receive. And the reason why you receive honor is because Christ has already taken all of the shame that you could ever experience. And so all that we are left with when we come to Jesus is honor. That's all we got. No shame. So second, in verse 7, Peter quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22. And this verse seems to be one of Peter's favorite verses since he quotes it a couple of times, or a couple of different places in the, in the Bible as a whole. Because it's, it's one that he heard Jesus quote when he was telling his parable about the wicked tenants in Matthew chapter 21. So in this parable, Jesus tells the story of wicked tenants of the master's vineyard who eventually kill the master's son. So it's a parable. So Jesus is using this to talk to usually the religious leaders of the day to kind of make a point. And really, Jesus does it in a lot of ways to kind of stick it to the religious leaders in kind of a quiet, subtle way. So really what Jesus is saying is, this is exactly what is about to happen. You are about to kill the master's son. And So then Jesus closes his parable with the words of Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So Peter also uses this exact verse in his third sermon in Acts chapter 4 when he confronts the religious leaders with these powerful words. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel That by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. The man that's been healed. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter wants his readers to be very clear that the cornerstone, their cornerstone, is Christ. So the third use of the Bible found in verse 8 is from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 through 15, that reads like this. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. So in this passage, the Lord Almighty is in his sanctuary, who will be for both the houses of Israel, a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that will make some of them fall. So Isaiah is saying here, and Peter is echoing in verse 8, that those who disbelieve in the gospel will stumble over the stone who is Christ. And let me just add, there is no way of getting around this stone either. If you think, well, I can just go an alternate uh, route and I can avoid this stone, I can avoid Jesus altogether. And let me just tell you that there is no alternative path that will allow you to avoid having to do something about this stone who is Jesus. Every one of us has to make that conscious decision about whether to follow Christ or not. Some, Peter says, will stumble, and some will build their house upon him. And those who stumble are those who refuse to believe in Him and obey Him. And then Peter makes this statement concerning those who will stumble at the end of verse 8. He says, They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. So what Peter has done for us from God's Word is given us a a short kind of mini systematic theology lesson on the doctrine of salvation here. Specifically, coming back to this idea of, in this belief of election. That the cornerstone of God, Jesus, uh, is one of only two things to every person. There is no third way. He's one of two things to every person. He is either your cornerstone or your stumbling block. So you will either receive Christ or you will reject Christ. And those who receive Him are considered the elect of God, and those who reject Him are not. And this, Peter says, is their destiny. Romans 1, 24-26. Paul tells us what this looks like to um, stumble over Christ rather than making Him your cornerstone. He says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their, bo- of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than, than the Creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For their women exchange natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature, and on and on it goes. But what he's saying there is those who disbelieve are those who are more in love with their sin than they ever will be with Jesus. And God says, I'll let you have that. So this is admittedly a hard doctrine to wrap your mind around, and I am only scratching the surface of it. I'm not going any deeper than that. Because one of the things that makes it really hard is that we must admit that how this fits together logically eludes us as human beings. Yet at the same time, it's clearly taught in the Scriptures, and very much so in 1 Peter something that is helpful whenever you come upon this doctrine in the Bible, this doctrine of election, that, that some are elected and others are not. That is a hard doctrine to get your mind around. But whenever you come to this doctrine in the Bible, or you're having to wrestle with it with somebody that you, that you know and love, uh, to understand it, it, it properly, well, to have a proper underst- a study of election, should always begin with and end with God. Any study of that hard doctrine has to start with God and it has to end with God. Meaning this doctrine of election that God ordains some to salvation and overlooks others who are trapped in their sin should not be based on how we feel about the doctrine. Or how we feel about whether or not we, we know someone is not elect. That should not be what's driving our belief. What should be driving our belief should be based on who God is. And so when you do it like this, when you remember who God is, you remember that, oh yeah, God is love embodied. Love embodied. That is who He is. That He is always right. That He is always true. That He is always good. He is he's never changing. He is always faithful even when we are faithless. God is all of those things and more. So we begin with God and then we end with God and then we rest in that. We rest and we trust in that. Which gets at why Peter emphasizes God's sovereignty here. Because there's no hint of theological debate. If you look at at the doctrine of election in the Bible, we like to argue about it nowadays. I mean, Some of us do. Some of us might be going, I have never thought about that before. And now I just, now you're going to argue about it. But we like to argue about it nowadays. But in the Bible, it is never an argument, if you notice. It is never up for theological debates. There are those who are elect and there are those who are not. And Peter is confident in this truth. So rather than debating or giving them a reason to debate, Peter talks to them about the sovereignty of God in their salvation to comfort his readers. Because if you remember, his readers find themselves neck deep in the mire of the culture around them, a culture that hates them, a culture that is eventually going to kill a lot of Christians simply based on what they believe to be true. And so reminding them of the sovereignty of God reminds them that the evil in this world will never overwhelm you because it isn't severed from God's control. And this is true for you as well because because God is sovereign even over salvation, we can be sure that he is sovereign over every moment of our lives, even the suffering moments even the moments when you feel like God is far from you, God says, I am still here and I am still in control. And just remembering that you are God's house, that He is building, and that He has made Christ the cornerstone of, so that it will never fall, no matter what is thrown at you. So now that we understand what Peter is getting at here in these these verses in verse 8, it makes makes verses 9 through 10, I think, that much more special and more crucial to our understanding that who we are is to be bound up in Christ. So look at verses 9 through 10. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now in our lives, as good Americans, we often base our self-concept of who we are uh, on accomplishment. So we think what we do makes us who we are, which means if I get a promotion at work, that means I am a better person than the the guy that's behind me. But it also works in the opposite direction too because if you don't get that promotion that you think you deserve, you think you're worse off than the person ahead of you. But let me just tell you this, if that's something you're wrestling with right now. That is not true, and it never will be true. Because your worth, value, who you truly are, your true self can only be found in Christ. So in verses 9-10, through 10, Peter declares these five descriptions that are true concerning those whose identity is found in Christ. And they all come from the Bible. So first he says they are a chosen race, which, is, which echoes Isaiah chapter 43. So remember, Peter is identifying these Gentile Christians, these non-Jews, with with people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and saying, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is now your God as well. So to only refer to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was a very Jewish thing to do. And now to apply it to the Gentiles was was, was something altogether different. And the only reason that the Gentiles have access to to all of the promises and truths of the Old Testament is because Christ has come. And so Peter is making this connection over and over again, trying to remind them that you too are the people of God, that you too have been grafted into the tree by God himself through Christ, that all of the promises of the Old Testament are yours in Christ. And so Peter now makes this radical claim that those who believe in Jesus Christ, so Jew, Gentile, Roman, Cappadocian, Bithynian, black, white, Hispanic, or whatever, though from many races, Peter says, now in Christ constitute a new race of those who have been born again into this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And while this doesn't erase our culture, or our race, it, it better unites you with other races and cultures under the banner of the gospel. So this is what we mean when we say that the gospel is what changes everything, and so with the gospel is what, is what heals racism. And this is what Peter is saying right here, because racism is not a new thing. It, it was happening in, in the first century as it still happens today. And Peter is saying that in the gospel, we are one race. Because we are united by the same thing. So this is why the scriptures say over and over and over again that every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. So every tribe of the world. Every tongue that is spoken, not just English. And every nation will be at the throne of Christ Worshipping together, not in separate church buildings. Together. I don't know how that's all going to work out. But that is the promise of Scripture. So, if you think your race, your culture, or your language is somehow superior to other races, cultures, and languages, I doubt, very seriously, you will be gathered at the throne of Jesus. For one, you'll just have a really hard time being there. So this is from the the Center for Biblical Unity's website. And if you haven't checked this out, um, you should. Um, But they say this. They say, The New Covenant invites people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to create a new humanity through Jesus Christ. The church is God's strategic agent in a fallen world to proclaim and embody the unity and diversity of God's people that will be manifest in the new creation. And this is only found in the gospel. Second, Peter says they are a royal priesthood. So 1 Peter is the only epistle to give this sort of title to the Christian community. But it was something that he saw clearly from the Old Testament scriptures because Priests in the Old Testament were meant to be sanctified and set apart from the people at large. So the priests, they were essentially their own tribe. And so they were, they were kind of set apart from, from everybody else among them because they had a spe- specific ministry for God. And so they had to be holy. They had to be set apart. They couldn't be caught up in, in, in all of the ongoings of everyday life in Israel. So by including them as both royal and priestly... Peter is again setting apart God's people. He's already called them holy, so they already know they're set apart. But here he is being very specific at what their role is now as believers. That they are set apart as priests who serve the king of the universe. That is why they are a, a royal priesthood, set apart to serve the king of the universe. Third, Peter says they are a holy nation. And this is not something they derived on their own, but is a holiness that is derived from the holy king of the universe who has bound himself to them via the covenant that he has made with them in Christ. So they are a holy nation. The fourth descriptor, they are a people for God's own possession. And this is an allusion to both Exodus 19.5 and Isaiah 43 once again. And in both of these passages... God is referring to His holy nation as belonging to Him as His special possession. So God was was very clear about that throughout the Bible, that He would remind His people, this is why I didn't choose you because you were bigger in number. I didn't choose you because you were were special in your own right. I just chose you because I loved you. Exodus 19.5, God says, now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine And then his fifth descriptor in verse 10 alludes to Hosea chapter 2 verse 23 which says these words speaking God speaking through Hosea and I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people you are my people and he shall say You are my God. So these are words spoken by God to his people after they have failed miserably to keep his covenant. So much so that he he tells them that they will not receive mercy from him. That he calls them no mercy now. That, That they are no longer his people. And then here we see him saying, No, actually I will show mercy to you. No, actually, even though you don't deserve it, you will still be called my people. And you know what? At the very end of it, you will say, you are my God. You will come back to me. I will, I will make sure of it, that you will come back. And in Peter's final statement here about his reader's identity, he is saying that this wonderful promise of God in Hosea chapter 2 has come to fruition in them. This is Hosea chapter 2 coming to fruition amongst these Gentile Christians. That God is now having mercy on them. That God is again saying, you are my people. And these Christians are turning around and saying the exact same thing that God said they would say. You are my God. That their conversion to Christ is the fulfillment of this promised restoration. So Peter says in the middle of all of these scriptures that there is a reason that you are all of these things. It's Not just to make you feel good about yourself or, or whatever you, know, you might be feeling at this, at this time. But The reason that you are bound up in Christ is so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That is why you are bound up with Jesus. You are to take on the mission that Jesus had and to fulfill it here on this earth because you simply have his identity. So back to that quote from James K.A. Smith that I mentioned in the intro. He says, Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. So, if your longings and desires are being a dad, or being a nurse, or it's your online persona, that is what will drive your actions and behaviors. But if your longings and desires are bound up in Christ, then that means it's at the core of who you are, which changes all of those other Identities, Because I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a son. You know, I'm all of those things. I have to be. But because my life is bound up in Christ, that means it changes the core of who I am, which means it changes everything about me. And then that means the wellspring from which your actions and behavior flows comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the message we proclaim from that is simply... Hey, he—he's brought me out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Or as the old pastor uh, hymn writer John Newton put it near the close of his life, he said, "Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly: I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior." Let's pray. Father in heaven, if there are two things that I would want all of us to remember are those very words by John Newton that is just a simple uh, gospel reminder that we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. And I pray that as a people who have been changed by the gospel, that we would find our core identity in the gospel and that through that we would... Share this gospel message of you bringing us out of darkness into your marvelous light with a watching world, and that many would turn to you. We pray all of these things in the name of our rock and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.